Well, I thought this morning we should have a bit of a contest and see who could do the best victory dance. And then I thought this really isn't the comedy hour, so we'll just keep moving on. Some of you have some great uh, sports dances I'm sure you could do. But the point is there's victory in Jesus. How many of you believe that? There's victory in Jesus. We've been studying the miracles, the supernatural demonstrations of God through the life of Elijah. We've discovered that the supernatural can be confrontational, counterintuitive, revelatory, refreshing, and prophetic. And sometimes the supernatural is just simply victorious. Just because you run out of resources doesn't mean that God runs out of resources. The doctor's not the final word. The banker's not the final word. The politicians are not the final word. Until Jesus speaks and God expresses his will, it isn't over because there's victory in Jesus. Is there anyone in the house this morning? There's victory in Jesus. And in this part of the story with Elijah, it's all about Elijah's facing incredible odds and no way that he can win except God. How many of you have had a but God moment? It was over, but God. I was in trouble, but God. How many has ever had a but God moment that God came by and intervened? And that's what happens for Elijah. A battle plan has been formed to silence Elijah, but God has a better plan. And there are some times that you and I cannot win without supernatural intervention. You can do everything in your power, and there's sometimes you just need to grow up and work hard. Well, that could have gotten an amen. I said, sometimes you just need to grow up and work hard. Sometimes you need to exercise your will and stand up. There are times that you need to do everything you know to do, but then there are other times when you run out of what you can do, but God hasn't. And he comes by. So we're in 2 Kings, if you want to follow along there in your Bible, your digital device, join us, 2 Kings chapter 1. And let's find out what happens in this story of the soldiers that come to arrest Elijah. The story starts in chapter 2 with what I, I mean, chapter 1 with what I would call a faithless appeal. The king of Israel, who's also referred to as the king of Samaria, because that's where he's chosen to put his throne, has come to a place that he's in physical trouble. He, he fell through the lattice. Now, that could be one of several things. It could have been a second floor window that would have had lattice work around it, that he leaned against it and fell out. And I will tell you, anytime that you're more out than you are in, you're in trouble of falling out the window. It could have been a battlement around the roof of the house where there would have been lattice work as well. But more likely, there was a skylight in his house that had lattice work and he fell through that to the floor and injured himself. I don't know if any of you have taken a fall, but we had a, a property that we owned um, in a previous pastorate that provided housing for one of our staff. And his wife left him, not left him permanently, she went to the store. 
and the baby was in the high chair. And she said, don't do anything stupid while I'm gone. How many wives have said that to your husbands? Don't do anything stupid while I'm gone. And there was something up in kind of the attic. Now, this attic was just a ceiling choice and sheetrock. Have you been in one of those? There's no flooring. You got to walk on those ceiling choice. And when she came home, she saw sheetrock everywhere while he's hanging on to one of the floor joists because he slept and came right through the ceiling and he's hanging there. The baby is in the high chair watching dad dangle like a ceiling light. And she said, I told you not to do anything stupid while I was gone. So, well, he came through it pretty much unscathed except the story that's followed him the rest of his life. But Ahaziah has fallen and he's been injured and he wants to know what's going to happen. And so he consults with Beelzebub of Ekron. Beelzebub. Now, you've got to understand why this is so important to look at. Beelzebub of Ekron was a title for one of the false gods of the fallen nations. And this king was supposed to represent the nation of Israel. He's supposed to respond as God would have him respond. And he wants to know instead how he's going to make it. Is he going to live or is he going to die? So he, rec- he asked for Beelzebub to give him an answer. Now, Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. <laughs> I think that meant lack of deodorant. just smile it goes faster if you smile even at the dad jokes in that in that time there was two things that could have meant lord of the flies meant that they understood that sickness could be carried by flies and so if you had an open wound that sickness could be carried by those flies and so they saw Beelzebub as the, as the god of healing and sickness that ruled over the flies. The other thing that they did is they would watch flies movement and then be able to discern the will of God from watching the movement of the flies similarly, similarly as reading tea leaves and the residue in the body. Now, how many of you would recognize that as being ridiculous? How do you know what God wants you to do as watching the flies? My father-in-law, before he passed, had a mission in life. Whenever we got together for a family gathering, he always had a fly swatter. We could be out in a park. We could be wherever we were. His goal was to kill as many flies as possible. And with that fly swatter, if that fly landed on your head, he was going to get it. He was after the flies. What a silly thing to do. Why does he go there? He should have known better than going to the Lord of the flies to get an answer. Why would he even know better? Well, let's remember where they came from. Do you remember when the children of Israel were in Egypt's bondage and God set them free through a series of 10 plagues? The first one was water turning to blood. 
The second was the plague of frogs. The third was the plague of lice. And the last was the plague of flies. This would have been common knowledge history for all of Israel when you talk about flies. And I just want you to visit there for a moment to see how ridiculous it is that he would turn from the God of Israel to the God of the flies. The Bible tells us in Exodus that the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people, into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on the day, on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I am the Lord. I am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign shall occur tomorrow. The Lord did this, the Bible says. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials throughout Egypt. The land was ruined by the flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron said, go sacrifice your God and uh, do so here in the land. But Moses said that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer to the Lord would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifice to the Lord as he has commanded us. So this whole thing is, there's a recognition that God has sent flies to drive the, the Egyptians back and Moses recognizes that there isn't any way that the worship of Egypt and the worship of Israel is compatible. Pharaoh said, I'll let you go to offer sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, as soon as I leave you, I'll pray to the Lord. And tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only let Pharaoh be sure that he does not act deceitfully. Moses left Pharaoh, prayed to the Lord. The Lord did what Moses prayed, and the flies left. That story would be common in the history and the fabric of the culture of Israel. And knowing that, what does it take for a king who knows the story of God conquering the Lord of the flies in Egypt to turn back to that which they've been delivered from? What a rejection of faith. This wasn't just a curiosity. It was a rejection of faith. And so the message that comes back on the way, Elijah interrupts the request to Baalzebub, interrupts the soldier who's going to get the message and says that go back and tell Ahaziah he is going to die. He goes back to Ahaziah and said, uh, I didn't make it to Beelzebub. I ran into somebody who told me to go back and tell you you're going to die. And Ahaziah said, what's he look like? <laughs> well, <laughs> he was wearing a big leather belt and wearing a coat of hair. It's Elijah. Now, if he knew Elijah from a coat of hair and a leather belt... How many know 
that he knew who Elijah was. He could have just as easily summoned Elijah as to go to the prophet or the Lord of the flies, just as easily. Why wouldn't he? Because there are places in life that you and I know the answer that God's going to give. And so we go somewhere else to get the answer we want. How many of you parents have ever had your kids work mom and dad against each other? Dad, can I? What did your mom say? <laughs> Going to get the answer you want. People will go from counselor to counselor till they get the answer that they want. You'll find somebody that'll tell you what you want to hear. He could easily have called Elijah rather than going to Beelzebub. So it makes him mad. He has no right to say that. So he sends after Elijah a captain and 50 men to bring him back. Now, what do you think they're going to bring him back for? A dinner? A party? I think it's pretty safe to say he either wants to kill Elijah or imprison Elijah, but he wants to shut up the voice of the prophet. And this world can do everything it can to shut up the voice of the prophet, but it'll never be able to stop the voice of God in the world that we live in. God cannot be stopped. Here comes 50. Now, again, this story gets really, really fun with what takes place. There's a there's a disaster about to happen. So think about this final rejection of faith by Ahaziah sending these soldiers to capture him. Ahaziah is turned completely away from God. When we were at, uh, in Ames and involved at Iowa State, we had a young man who played drums. Uh, his name was Brian. Brian was a piece of work. And we tried to help Brian. Brian was in college for a long time. When he graduated, I hadn't heard of this before, he graduated with a general bachelor's degree. It means he got a bachelor's degree that wasn't in anything. But he had taken so many classes, they gave him a degree and let him graduate. Well, I met Brian's dad, and Brian's dad was into all kinds of mystical things, and he came to talk to me about his son, and he wasn't open to us at all, but I'll never forget talking to his dad, and his dad said, I just want you to know that I've prayed for my son in five religions. <laughs> he had tried, something's got to work, right? I mean, let's try Islam, let's try Buddhism, let's try Shintoism, let's try them all. Because there's something in that moment where he knew there needed divine intervention. And that's where, where Ahaziah has gone down a whole different road to a whole different God when he gets a message from Elijah. Here's what I want you to think about. Everybody has faith in something. Everybody has faith in something. A variety of religious expressions... Humanism, atheism, science. When you talk to an atheist who say they're anti-faith, they have faith in all kinds of things. They have faith in human ability to process and discern. 
They have faith when they come into a building. It's not going to collapse on them. And I'm just saying to you that all of us have faith in something. Where do you put your trust? And here's what I know. Where you go when you're in trouble tells me what you really believe in. Some people turn to alcohol. Some people turn to drugs. Some people turn to illicit um, sexual activities. They turn to something to satisfy them. And you can say whatever you want to say when it's good, but where do you go when life is tough, when you're facing death, when there's trouble? Where do you turn? That will tell me who you really believe in. So you have a king who has, an, has made a decision to walk completely away from God with a faithless appeal to a false god. So he sends those under him on an ungodly mission to bring Elijah back. Now watch what happens. This story cracks me up a little bit. I mean, people get burned up. That's not funny. I know that. Okay, I know that. But here they come. The captain with 50 soldiers. Man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answers the captain. Are you ready for this? If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. At that moment, I'm saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You see, they, know, they knew the story. Do you know this happened before? I mean, Elijah's demonstrated that he calls fire down from heaven. There were 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, and they've all gathered around this bull to offer sacrifice, and God sent fire, the God that answers by fire. How dumb do you have to be? When he says, if I'm a prophet... Fire is going to consume you. I'm asking everybody to go into that stance we used to do in practice for the atomic bomb. On the floor, head down, arms up, asking God for forgiveness. Do, do, do you see what I'm trying to paint for you a picture of the senselessness of unbelief and the senselessness of trying to do your own thing in rebellion against God. I'm just telling you, the story had already been told. He's already done it once and they just stand there and whoosh, they're consumed. This is just a ridiculous story because now Ahaziah sends another captain and another 50 men. I'm not volunteering, are you? This other group comes and does the same thing. The king says, come down. And he says, if I am a prophet of God, fire is going to consume you. Come on, get a grip. Use your head. God is God. He's already demonstrated his power. How long will you rebel? And God consumes them. 50 to 1 odds. Now here's, I want you to look at it from the other side. Does Elijah have a chance against an army of 50? How many of you would say he doesn't have a chance? 
doesn't have a chance. Elijah against 50, they're armed soldiers. There's not a, it's over Elijah, just go peacefully. But God. (laughs) God and you, I know it's trite, but God and you are always a majority. Second group comes, they're consumed. And here's what I commonly hear people say. Well, well, why would God do that? Why would God consume God's wrath is such a hard thing to understand. Why would God do that? Why doesn't anyone ever ask? Why did Ahaziah do that? Over the years, I've heard the church criticized. I've heard leaders criticized. Anytime a line is drawn, why did they do that? And no one ever asks, why did the person act the way that they acted? It's the person who's in rebellion and sin that needs to be dealt with. Is anyone hearing me this morning? But we want to push God back because we're afraid we'll be held in that same accountable way. No excuses, no failure on the part of the people of God. They're all consumed. The devil is scheming today against you. Paul tells us of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He's talking about a man that was brought under discipline for an unspeakable kind of sin. And they removed him and isolated him and he repents, but the church now isn't willing to forgive him. And so they've put him in this category where he's going to be punished. But Paul writes back and listen to what he says. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I've forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. What that tells me is that the devil is scheming against you. He doesn't play fair and he hates all believers And he knows exactly what will trip you up. How many have ever crossed over a line that you wouldn't have crossed over if you'd been aware of what was coming? But in that moment, scheming against you gets you to behave or react in a fashion that you would not behave or react in normally. We need to be aware of that and not be ignorant of the devil's devices, that he sets traps for people, he really does, and sets up scenarios to cause you to stumble and fall. And one of the great ways he does that is with bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. And Paul is saying, we're not ignorant of that. We're not we're not ignorant of that but when God comes alongside you and you respond to him and live by biblical principles there's victory in the house for the people of God you have to want that victory you have to want that victory devil is scheming against you we have the armor of God we have a divine strategy and we have divine power So these armies, after a faithless king sends them on a godless mission, experience prophetic victory, the victory of the prophet of God. 
two companies that are destroyed. A second company that didn't learn anything. Do you know that evil missions have an element of insanity in them? People that are pursuing what is wrong, what is evil, going down ungodly roads. There's an element of that that just doesn't make sense. You can watch the roads people go down again and again and again and it never ends well. When will we learn? So here comes the third company. The third company comes and listen to what they say. The third company went up and fell on his knees. The captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. Fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men, but now have respect for my life. One of the principles that flows through the story of Elijah is that God always responds to humility. And finally, somebody gets it. The captain can't undo what Ahaziah has decreed, but he can humble himself in the eyes of God. And I, I just wonder, can I just talk to us for a minute? Why some people simply decide to be consumed by the fire of God, then repent and humble themselves before God. I look at it and I watch it. Is anyone hearing me this morning? I watch it again and again and again, you don't win fighting God. You win by humbling yourself before God. And he puts all of the pieces together. I get so frustrated watching the rebellion that people have against God refusing to submit. But when this captain comes and the whole army says, you know, we saw this happen once. We saw this happen twice. We're not going to be victims number three. They bow in humility before God. <laughs> That's the uh, alarm. The fire is about to fall somewhere. And God says to Elijah, I want you to go. Don't be afraid. Elijah got up, went down to the king. Now watch. Here's what he told the king. This is what the Lord says. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you consult that which you've sent messengers to consult, Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave this bed you're lying on you will certainly die. While he died of the injuries he sustained in the fall, he died at the judgment of God. So he died according to the word of the Lord. Don't forget how the human story ends. And don't forget the supernatural that God does. The king with all of his might and all of his authority and all of his armies tries to stop one prophet of God and cannot do it. 
and cannot find an answer from an ungodly source and dies in his bed. I am completely convinced that had he repented, God would have raised him up, but he was totally and completely unwilling to do that. And the piece that I want you to grab hold of today is whatever challenge you face, whatever battle the devil has raged against you, whatever struggle you're looking at, we win. I've read the back of the book. Come on, is there anyone in the house? I read the back of the book and we win. We're going to heaven. It's all going to be settled there. But between now and then, while there are times that I don't understand the outcomes, it isn't over until he says it's over. Armies can come against you. The devil can rage against you, but there's power among the people of God filled with the Spirit of God. Listen to what the Bible says. I want to compare two verses for you, one from the King James and the same verse from the NIV. Is that all right if I pick on the NIV again this morning? Is everybody okay with that? Because it illustrates this this thought that I want us to grab a hold of. Number one, listen to what the King James says. For thou, how many know that thou means you? People tell me they can't understand it, so I'm trying to help you. For thou wilt light my candle. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by thee I have run through a troop, and by my God I have leaped over a wall. That sounds pretty supernatural to me. I have run through a troop and leaped over a wall. The NIV says it this way. You, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns the darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. Now, I want you to see the difference in that. One is the victory of human effort. The other is the victory of divine intervention. I don't know how you are, but there are a lot of people that can strategize and advance against an army. And if you're skilled enough, you can scale a wall. Those are not the scenarios that David is writing about. I think that King James gets it better. With God's help, here comes an advancing army and I can run right through them. I'm not going to scale a wall. I'm going to leap over the wall. And there is something about the mind of man that wants to find a human solution to his dilemma so that he can take some credit for. And I think the NIV completely demolishes the intent of that verse. What is the intent? That God can do through you what you cannot do, that God's able to accomplish what you cannot accomplish and empower you to have victory over the enemy that you and your own strength and wisdom cannot obtain. God provides that for us, that strength for us. The weapons of our warfare are mighty. And God wants to confirm his word with signs following. And the, the place that I want us to call us back to on this Pentecost Sunday is faith and confidence in the supernatural power of an almighty God. And if you're in a place that you're facing the army of the enemy. I've got good news for you. He's in the house. He's in the house. 
And if you're a prophet of God, who does that apply to? Everyone that's a child of God should covet the prophesy and be the voice of God in this generation. If you're facing that, I'm telling you that God is bigger than your dilemma. Pastor Nathan, if you'd come, I want us to take a little bit of time this morning to just worship God together, spend some time in his presence. And I want every head bowed, every eye closed just for a moment. I wonder how many this morning would be willing to say, I'm in a place where the devil has surrounded me. I feel like I'm being attacked by the armies of evil and I need God to bring victory into my life this morning. If that's you with no one looking around, I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want you to lift your hand and let you know that God's in this place. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Hold your hand up. Yes, thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Across the balcony. Anyone? Yes, thank you. Anyone else this morning? God's in the house. Here's what I know. God inhabits the praise of his people. And I know that King Ahaziah can pronounce judgment against you. I know that the armies of the enemy can come against you. But also know there's a God that answers by fire. How many are hearing me this morning? There's a God that answers by fire. And he can consume the enemy and give you the victory. What we need to have is a fresh anointing, a fresh touch, a fresh presence of God. So let's stand together and let's take the last few minutes this morning to just magnify him, to praise him, to lift his name, to exalt him, and let God give you the victory over the enemy that you need to have. Come on, church, lift your hands this morning. Let's give him praise. Let's magnify him today. Isn't the name of Jesus wonderful? Isn't the name of Jesus wonderful? Sing. All the world can come to you and have their sins removed. Isn't the name of Jesus wonderful? I believe. Isn't the name of Jesus beautiful?
say thank you for that whether you do it in the box in the mail or do it online we're so thankful for your consistent and faithful generosity thank you for that so much amen god bless you let's believe in god's supernatural victory